For those of you who are new to this, I, don't, I can't even remember exactly how it got started, but we've been doing this for a, a number of years, I think I don't know, seven or eight years, just where uh, we just do a Q&A, and uh, th- it can be about any, any topic related to Bible passages, theology, Christian living, ministry. It's just sort of wide open. Uh, the one... Um, the one guideline is that, and I stress this every time, uh, you cannot use this uh, in an attempt to try to pit one professor against another. In other words, if you know a professor has a view and another professor, you're trying to stir the pot. We, we don't want any of that. So don't. Now, if you have a legitimate question, we, you know, that'd be fine. We could talk about it, but. But no ulterior motives like, well, I know so-and-so holds to limited atonement, and this guy holds to unlimited atonement, so I'm going to throw that question out so I can kind of get the... We, we don't want that, okay? So other than that, uh, there's really, there are no really uh, restrictions. Any question, no guarantee whatsoever I can answer it, but we'll take a stab at it, uh, whatever, whatever it is. So uh, some of you who have been at the school for a while kind of know how it works. If you're a freshman, maybe you haven't. Uh, been a part of it. So, someone get us started. We'll jump in. We're putting this on our website, so we'll record questions. Too. <laughs> um, can you explain dispensationalism? Because I keep hearing that word around in class and stuff, sure. but I have no idea what sure, they're talking sure. about. Okay, good question. Uh, <clears throat> good question. There are, and this is, you know, greatly simplified, but basically within Christianity, conservative Christianity, there are, there are two theological systems. Now, again, that's, that's an overstatement, but I think most would agree. There is covenant theology and dispensational theology, okay? Um, and in all of our circles, when you line up all the areas of theology, like theology proper, which is the theology of God, Christology, theology of Christ, etc., Covenant theology and dispensational theology typically line up on all of those. Okay, so if you want to say, well, I don't, what's the difference between that and other, it, they, you know, angelology, pneumatology, soteriology, they line up. Where the two systems uh, separate is in two areas of theology, uh, and that is, again, using the technical terms, uh, in ecclesiology, which is the theology of the church and eschatology, which is the theology of end times. Now, again, these are generalizations because there's hyper-dispensationalism and covenant theology has different branches. But in general, uh, dispensational theology would see the church beginning at the day of Pentecost and the, the church dispensation. That's where the term comes from, dispensationalism, is that dispensationalism sees God carrying out his program, his plan in different eras or different way. Uh, that's not the best terminology. but um, So this, the present dispensation that we're in, the church age, began at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, baptized the believers into the body of Christ. And it will end at the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air. Now I use that phrase rather than rapture as the common term. Um, wherever you put that. And in dispensationalists, some are pre-trib rapture, some are mid-trib rapture, some are what's called pre-wrath rapture, which places the rapture right near the end of the tribulation period, but not all the way at the end, which would be post-trib 
rapture. So there's four different views on the timing of the great gathering. It's either pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, pre-wrath, or it's basically identical with the second coming. That would be post-trib, okay? So dispensations would say we're in the church age now and that the Lord is building his church. As he said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, uh, that we are in the age where uh, eventually there will be what Paul calls in Romans, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, God has saved all the Gentiles. He's going to save. Then he'll turn back to his program for Israel. Uh, so that's sort of the dispensational scheme. And uh, it's related to ecclesiology and eschatology uh, because in covenant theology, in general, now again, I don't want to overgeneralize, but in general, covenant theology would not see as strong of a distinction between Israel and the church as dispensational theology would see. They would just see that God has started a program and he's just kind of continuing it. Yeah, obviously it changed when Jesus came. That was a monumental difference in the Holy Spirit uh, came in Acts 2. But, but dispensationalists draw stronger distinctions that God was working with Israel and uh, he worked with them through the first uh, 483 years of Daniel 9's prophecy, and then he's working with the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then Paul's word in Romans 11, and then so all Israel will be saved. He'll turn back, and in the last seven years, which is where we get a seven-year tribulation, he will finish his program with the Jews, okay? So, so it, it, that's where the, the, the departure comes in theology between covenant and dispensational is do you see a strong distinction between the church and Israel, or are they, they, is, is what's going on now just a continuation of God's dealings with Israel? And then, of course, it's going to affect your end times view, because if the church is Israel, or basically the same, uh, or if, I should say if it's not Israel, uh, then you might see more reason to have a literal seven-year tribulation period during which time God saves Israel, etc. So it affects your ecclesiology, and your eschatology. Whereas in, in covenant theology in general, there's not a, a strong distinction between the church and Israel. Therefore, uh, maybe not as strong of a need to see a literal seven-year tribulation period. So they go hand, you can see how ecclesiology and eschatology go hand in hand. And so, um, so though that, that's, if you just put a chart and just said all these areas of theology, where's the difference? Well, they're not going to differ, at least most of my friends who are either dispensational or covenant, they're not going to differ in soteriology or angelology or pneumatology, homardiology, theology of sin, but where the difference comes is in ecclesiology and eschatology. Does that help? Does that answer your question? So, Okay. Okay. All right. Good, good. All right, good. next. So in our doctrine class, we just wrapped up the anthropology section of, uh, and one of our papers that we were all assigned to do was on the image of God. Yes. Uh, would you mind just fleshing out your understanding sure. of the image of God and how sure. you came there? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I know there are different views on it. And again, I wouldn't want to, I don't know what view you were taught, so I wouldn't want to inadvertently sort of go in opposition to the professor. But uh, I believe the image of God in man uh, out of Genesis uh, involves three components, if you will, three aspects. Uh, one is, I think, that the image of God in man involves uh, personhood, the fact that we are persons. And what is the definition of personhood? We have 
intellect, emotion, volition, those same things that God has. Uh, so we're in the image of God in a unique way in our intellect, emotion, volition, etc. cetera. Uh, so that is one aspect of the image of God, at least my understanding of it. A second aspect of the image of God in man is dominion. God has given to mankind dominion. He said, be fruitful and multiply, take care of the earth, cultivate it. In other words, you're in charge just as God is in charge of the universe. So he has granted man to be in charge of his created world. So it is a stewardship to us to exercise that. And then a third aspect of the image of God in man, and we could go to the passages, but it's interesting if you... You know, let us make God in a man, not God, let us make man in our own image and in the image of God. He created him and male and female. He created them. So you bring in a plural aspect. And so a third aspect of the image of God in man, I think, is our relational nature. In other words, God created man, the woman out of man, uh, marriage, etc. And just as God is a relational being in the tri in the triunity of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, so he has created us in his image to be relational people, thus the basis for marriage, etc. So that, that's just typically through the years how I viewed the image of God in man with those, those three components. Yeah. yeah. Another question? Yeah, back here. Let's go to Chandler and then to Jacob. So I've been having some conversations at work with a coworker um, <clears throat> discussing... Um, eschatology, and I was wondering if you could give an overview of the different different millennial um, stances, sure. like all millennial, sure. Sure. Um, that kind of thing, because I can't remember exactly what they are. Sure, sure. Yeah, basically there are three or four views. Um, uh, I mentioned a minute ago, you know, there's a number of views on the timing of the great gathering together into Jesus and the pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib. In the millennium, there are basically three, maybe four views, uh, and they all have the word millennium, premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial. Um, let me mention postmillennial. Postmillennial is a um, very, very rare view in our day. It used to be, oh, even maybe 100 years ago uh, within Christianity, a very prominent view uh, because post means... Um, the kingdom, millennial kingdom, is going to be here, and then Jesus is going to come back at the end of it or after it. So basically, postmillennialism has taught that the church is going to basically bring in the kingdom by us spreading the gospel. The more we spread the gospel, the more people get saved. There'll be people getting saved, and things will get better, better, and better, and then we'll bring in the kingdom, and at the end of it, Jesus will come back. Uh, really, what almost killed post-millennialism was not as much a the theological debate as much as World War I and World War II. It was hard to start arguing that things are getting better and better on planet Earth after you have World War I and World War II. So after those, post-millennialism isn't gone today. There are still, I know, some scholars that hold to it, but I, I think it's safe to say it's not within conservative evangelical Christi Christianity a prominent view. The two prominent views are premillennial and amillennial. Premillennial says Jesus is going to come back and he, pre the millennial kingdom, and he will establish the kingdom. Uh, 
So he will come back and then he will establish the kingdom, which if you're using the word millennial, which means millennium is 1,000, he will establish the kingdom that will last for 1,000 years. Um, the amillennial view, which I think is probably safe to say is probably the majority view within Christianity, again, conservative Christianity, if we talk about all Christianity, is that amillennial, there's not going to be a literal kingdom uh, we're in the kingdom now, or, there, or there's various, again, various shades of views within amillennialism. I wouldn't want to paint them all in the same box, but basically, ah negates, you know, ah on the front of the word negates it. So amillennial, there's not going to be a literal kingdom here on earth. We're e in the kingdom now. E either that's the way it's uh, taught. We're in the kingdom now, so we're not looking for a future kingdom, or heaven is the kingdom. So we, we don't take it literally that it's a kingdom, it's just a heaven. So those are the three views. Premillennial, Jesus comes back beforehand. Amillennial, uh, there's not going to be a, a kingdom on the earth. Postmillennial, Jesus will come back at the end of the kingdom. And then because it's so confusing for people, uh, some people have developed the view of panmillennial. It's just going to pan out in the end. You know, we're just, we're just going to have to forget it because we can't keep it all straight. So, but those, no, those are really the, the three views. So does that answer your question, Jan? Or, okay. okay. Jacob over here and then to Rachel. Yeah, so my, my question actually seems to be not on this theme. Sure, <laughs> sure. Um, this one is something I've struggled with for a, a long time, just trying to figure out what did Jesus mean and. Uh, John chapter 10, um, verse 34, well, 33 and 34, where um, he's, they're like, he's, or actually 31 starting off, but they're like, hey, the Jews are about to stone him. He says, I've shown you many great miracles. Which one do you stone me for? And they're like, hey, no, none, because you blasphemed. You claim to be the son of God, or claim to be God. And, um, and then his explanation to that wasn't, well, I am the son of God, but it's like, no, we're all. Doesn't, isn't your own scripture say that we're all little G gods? Yes. So me calling myself the son of God isn't claiming divinity right. any more than you all are. Sure. And so it's like I've seen both sides of the argument on sure. this one. I've heard um, the prosperity gospel side of things saying like, okay, you all are little G gods mm -hmm. so with dominion and kind right. of that vein of thought. Um, but then there's also the other side where it's like Jesus isn't divine. He was refuting them calling him divine by yes. this passage. So right. what is your understanding of this? Sure. Yeah, it's a great question because it is, it is uh, not an easy passage to ascertain at first glance. So uh, first of all, just one comment there coming out of your question is, there's, and we're in the right book for this, there's no doubt whatsoever that Jesus claimed to be God, right? I mean, we would all agree with that. John 5 17 and 18, they're going to stone him. For which of these good works do you stone me? Well, because you call yourself God by calling yourself the Son of God. They, they got it. They knew what he was saying. So did Jesus call him, refer to himself as God, claim deity? Absolutely. Multiple times in the Gospel of John. Here is another one. But this one is not as clear. This one's a little more complicated. So basically, you, you, you did a good job setting up here the scenario. So... Uh, and right here, Jesus, again, says that in verse 31, you know, many good works I've shown you from my father. For which of these do you stone me, etc. Um, so then he says in verse 33, or they say, the Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They, contrary to what the cults often tell us, I've had so many conversations with people in cults that say, Jesus never claimed to be God. You would never convince the first century Jews of that. That's why they continually wanted to stone him. They knew exactly what he was claiming. 
That, here's another case in point. You are making yourself God. So then now basically what Jesus is going to do is defend why he can do that. And he does do it in a different way than we might anticipate. So Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? Now, this is a reference back to Psalm 82, verse 6, where the judges of Israel occupied such a high and important role that they were referred to as Elohim. That is the plural in Hebrew. Um, and it is exactly the same word, by the way, that occurs in Genesis 1.1, uh, in the beginning, God, Elohim. And theologians have wrestled with, well, why a plural there? Because it is a plural word, and some theologians suggest, well, in Hebrew, there's a plural of majesty. So it's plural because God is so majestic. Uh, others have said, well, it, it's, it's a hint at the triunity of God. In other words, it's plural, and in, as later revelation comes along, that plurality will be seen as a trinity or triunity. But whatever the case, that is the same term. But our English translators are correct here. Because it is plural, it can rightly be translated God's with a small g, or it can rightly be translated God with a capital G as singular, depending on context, okay? So, but in the context of Psalm 82, it is clearly referring to people, judges of Israel, these who had these important roles, important position, and in fact, so important that the statement was made, you are God's, g, small g, uh, plural word, God. So you are exalted ones. You are very important in the society of Israel, okay? But they're clear. It's, it's just, they're mere human beings, okay? So Jesus says, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. Now, if he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and now we have a parenthetical thought, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent of the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. So here's the argument that Jesus is making. He is arguing from the lesser to the greater. In other words, the lesser human beings, though very important judges of Israel who, to whom the word of God came, if Scripture is willing to call them gods with a small g, and they're just mere human beings, though with a very important role in authority, I am not overstating my claim to say I am God in human flesh, the Son of God, because I, I'm not a mere human being. I am the one who was, how does he say it here? I was the one whom the Father sanctified in heaven and sent into the world. So again, the argument from the lesser to the greater, if, if Scripture is willing to call mere human beings gods uh, because of their important position, listen, my position is way bigger than that. I was in heaven. That's my origin. I'm heavenly. I was sanctified by the Father and sent in the world. So it is not uh, uh, you know, an excessive claim for me to say, I am the Son of God, i.e., I am God in human flesh. So it's just another way of Jesus defending his deity, but he does it by using their own scriptures and his argument goes, which is a common methodology of argument from lesser to greater. Lesser men to me, the greater. Yeah. Great question, Jacob. Zach. Um, my question is back along our theme. Um, 
how would someone who holds to a premillennial view reconcile the teaching that we have eternal life with Christ after Christ's return with a literal thousand-year reign? Like, how do you reconcile those two? Yeah, uh, and I may not be understanding your question, but... um, uh, Eternal life, first of all, we tend to view eternal life as unending. It's not inaccurate. Eternal life is unending. But eternal life, uh, that's why some of our older English translations would say everlasting life, emphasizing more the duration of it. And most of our translations to say eternal life, which I think is a little more accurate because the life that we receive certainly is an unending life. But that's not the most significant thing about it because unbelievers have an unending life. It's just that they're tormented night and day forever and ever in the lake of fire. So they don't cease to exist either. So the emphasis of everlasting life is not so much on the we don't cease to exist. It's on the quality of the life. We have the very life of God in our hearts and souls. Thus, because of that, we will live forever. So therefore, uh, you know, uh, someone who would hold to premillennialism would say there's no contradiction here because the quality of life we have, we have now, you know, John says, 1 John, beloved, now we're the children of God. We already have eternal life. John 5, 24, most assured I say to him, he who believes on uh, him who sent me, it, Jesus says, has eternal life and shall never come into judgment. Not shall have eternal life. So we already have it. So we have it now in this life. We'll have it in, if there is a future millennial kingdom, we'll still have eternal life. We'll be reigning with Christ. And then we'll have it for all eternity. And we'll never cease to exist. So it's just, how is that life expressed or lived out? Uh, Well, it does look a little differently here than it will in heaven. I think all of us would agree with that. And it would look differently in the millennial kingdom, if there is one. It'll look differently there than it looks now and look differently there than it will in heaven. But it's still all eternal life. So I think that's probably how it would answer. Yeah. Another question, guys? I thought I saw another hand. <clears throat> yeah, Esther. Um, Esther so I was talking questions. with... <laughs> Esther always asks good questions. I remember from class. Oh, you set me up. No, not, this isn't a good no, one. No, I'm the one that might uh, starting to sweat on the forehead. Oh, no, 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 like, no, 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 no. I remember Esther from class. I was always... Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay, well, this is not anything controversial, but I was talking with a friend, and he was talking about how the way he views God is that he wants us to be strong and to fight sin and, like, defeat whatever rather than be happy. And he has juxtaposed the two of those and has said that, like, God does not want us to be happy. Mm. He wants us to be strong. Mm. And... I would. I was just wondering where sure. you would take him in Scripture to show him that, like, that's not God's agenda. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, a general comment, and then I'll mention a few passages. But, um, you know, Esther, this is our tendency as, as Christians to, to be either or, and we really have to watch that. I mean, it's, uh, when, whether it's the Christian life or theology, I mean, you know, the, the classic example is, is on election. It, it, did God choose... Or does man have genuine human volition and we sort of make it an either or? And, uh, and then I, I often in conversations with people will say, well, you know, we're open to John here. Are we going to make this an either or? Who, who wrote this book? 
John. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Well, it's not an either or. I mean, and it's not like John wrote a verse and he handed the pen to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit wrote a verse and then they traded. It's not that way at all. John wrote the whole thing. The Holy Spirit wrote the whole thing. Let's not make it an either or. And there, you, we just tend to do that in a lot of, you know, a lot of areas of theology. You, the, the, the person of Christ, was he God or man? Of course, you know, it's not either or. He's both. Well, here's another, uh, I think, another example of that. And that is, uh, does God want us to fight sin? Absolutely. First Corinthians 9, Paul says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Uh, I have to discipline my body and say no to my body because my body pushes me towards sin to do things I shouldn't do, say things I shouldn't say, look at things I shouldn't look at. I have to say no to my body. Uh, so I have to fight sin. But on the other hand, if you paint the Christian life out as it's just this drudgery and struggle, um, then you miss like the whole theme of the entire letter of Philippians. Joy and rejoicing. 16 times the word joy or joyful or rejoicing is used in four little chapters. So Paul was no stick-in-the-mud kind of Christian. He was joyful. Not only that, the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Blessed are the merciful. That word is rightly translated blessed, but also theologians recognize it's probably the closest word that we have for, for an English word of happy. In fact, some of the looser translations, and I wouldn't say they're really strict translations, they're a little more paraphrased, but that's the way they render. Happy are the you know, blessed are the pure in heart. Happy are the pure in heart. So Jesus opens his immortal Sermon on the Mount by saying, you want to know how to be blessed? Or, or do you want to know how to be happy? Now, again, we're not talking about merely circumstantial happy, like everything's going well for me in life, so I'm happy. We're talking about a deep-rooted joy and contentment and happiness. So Jesus himself opens his Sermon on the Mount by saying, this is the path to blessedness. This is the path to, path to happiness. So I would not want to do, you know, what is evidently being done in that conversation to make it in either. I, I wouldn't want to dismiss that. Yes, we have to fight sin. We have to discipline ourselves. We have to say no to sin. Uh, but, but I wouldn't want to paint the Christian life out as just that and, and, and fail to see this other aspect. So. Great. Thank you, Esther. That's a good question. Another, another one, guys? Oh, back here. But let me go over there first, Chandler, since Forrest hasn't gone. Thanks. Uh, so me and Danny were uh, talking about this about two weeks ago in regards to the millennial kingdom. And it, it says there that uh, when someone dies in the millennial uh, reign or whatever, at 100 years old, he'll be said, it'll be said of him that he was died as like a, a young person, like a baby a almost. Yeah, yeah, as a child. Yeah. Um, now someone, regarding the saints who have been at that point, they are, from what I remember, um, raised and ruling with Christ, correct? What happens to that person who dies in the kingdom um, if they do believe? Do they rise right back up again and rule with Christ, with the saints, or are they waiting for the second resurrection, sure. uh, even if they are believers? Sure. The, the good question there, Forrest, and I would say this. That Isaiah 65 is the passage you're referring to. Isaiah 65 and 66 both talk about both the future kingdom and eternity. Uh, but interesting that the prophet Isaiah not only says that someone who dies 100 will be considered an infant or a child, he says they will be accursed. So the implication, now you've got, here's where we've got to be careful, but the implication is that if you hold to a future millennial kingdom, that people will live through the entire thing 
unless they rebel against Jesus and are executed and are cursed. Uh, because one of the aspects of the kingdom that is repeatedly emphasized, which what I don't hear emphasized very much in teaching on this, is this is stated multiple times. He will be, Jesus will be ruling with what? You finish the phrase, with a rod of iron. In other words, he's not going to tolerate rebellion. He's not going to allow it. So if someone rebels, they'll be accursed. They're going to be executed. They're not going to be allowed to openly rebel against King Jesus. Uh, which explains then the passage in Revelation 20, which says when Satan is released at the end of the kingdom, he's been in the abyss, he goes out on the earth and gathers together as the number of the sand of the sea, all these rebels, and they, one final assault on Jerusalem and fire comes down from heaven and destroys them. Well, where is he getting all these rebels from? Well, they're not outwardly rebelling in the kingdom. They're going to get executed. But like Judas, they go along with the program, but they never embrace Christ in their hearts. But they're in the kingdom, but not regenerate or not. They don't love Christ. So the chance they get when Satan is released is here's our chance to rebel. So I, my assumption, and I, I would want, want to be careful here, because, again, you just have these statements and we kind of try to wrestle with them, and extrapolate off of them, is that in answer to your question, someone who does die in the kingdom is going to probably die because they've rebelled and they're executed and they're accursed. That, that would be my, my take. And I, I wouldn't say I could 100% prove it, but by calling them accursed and, and, and also the implication that all others are going to live, you know, if you, if you die 100, you're considered a baby. Well, then that means you probably are going to live the whole thing. So yeah, that'd be my take on it, yeah. Good. There we go. Brian, I'll just throw up a different one because um, I think sometimes it's so helpful to hear some just ministry perspective and all that. Mm -hmm. You get to travel internationally and do some teaching and things. Can you just share with the students one or two really exciting things you see happening around the world right now mm. in terms of the gospel or the church, that kind of stuff? Yeah. Um, yeah, great question, Ryan. It's been, it has been a privilege to do a lot of pastor training in a lot of countries around the world. I don't know how we kind of fell into that as a church, but we tend to do it a lot. And uh, so we, we had a couple sites in Russia, multiple sites in Africa. Um, I think, you know, and I, and I say this, even though I have, all, have had all these opportunities, I realize I'm seeing such a small segment of the pie. I mean, Russia, <laughs> Russia has like 11 time zones or something. So to say that you've been to Russia doesn't mean anything as far as you know what's happening in Russia. It's so massive. <laughs> You know, but at least in the training sites that we're doing, what has been really exciting, really exciting, is just how the men that we work with. Listen, let, let me do a little caveat here. Aside, one of the things I did learn when I started doing this, which was really a surprise to me, gang, was I just sort of had in my mind this assumption that Christians in other places were way. I'll say it this way, better than us. What I mean is like, man, the Christians in Russia, they have had to pay a price. And they have, you know, and they're just, and, they, and the Christians in Africa, they're so poor and they're so, and you know, the thing that was probably the most shocking when I first started doing this a number of years ago is I thought, the Christians in Russia are just like us. They have all the same problems we have and all the same weaknesses and struggles and, 
and different ones, but and you know the Christians in Africa are just like us. They're not these super Christians. They're just and so like in Russia, uh, some of the hangups that they have sometimes you just can't seem to get over. I mean, uh, a woman head covering is a huge issue in Russia among Christians. A woman wearing jewelry. I remember the first time I went, I had a lady translator. She was phenomenal. And she said, I'm wearing my wedding ring, and all these Christians are upset with me because you're not supposed to wear jewelry. And it's just like, the Christians here are no different than us. We get, get sidetracked on the most trivial things sometimes. And, but at least with the groups we're working with, what's exciting is we continue to hear this statement. They'll push back on us and like, how can you not believe that, you know, a woman has to wear a head covering all the time, da, 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 and then we try to go through 1 Corinthians 11. And the phrase we hear, Ryan, repeatedly, which is so encouraging, thank you for taking us back to the Word of God. There is really a genuine hunger to know what does God say, what does it mean, then how does it... So that is the thrill, but it's, you, you kind of get shocked at times at some of the things you get pushed back on. You don't even know you're stepping into a hornet's nest. I mean, you just make some comment and it's like, woo, the room erupts. And, but it's just so neat when you just can gently and tactfully say, okay, let's, here's why I say it. Let's go through this passage. And then they just like, wow, that's just, we see it for ourselves. And thank you that it's not, because listen, the, the church in Africa, the church in Russia, the church in Ukraine, church in Albania, the church in Italy, these are just some of the places I've been. They have the same tendency we have, and that is sort of to build up our traditions that don't necessarily line up with the Word of God. So it's a thrill to see them say, oh, we've held to that, but Scripture really doesn't support that. And it's hopefully the same thing we are doing as American Christians, continually saying, let's come back to Scripture. And so I, I would say that's probably been the most encouraging thing is in all these different sites where we're involved, you, you know, just to see these men saying, we just really do want to know what the Word of God says. Now, we have our beliefs and our convictions, and we're not going to agree with you. But then, if you can show them in Scripture, they do end up agreeing with you. So that's a thrill, Yeah, I'd say. I, one other comment on that. In Africa, um, in Africa, and I've only been in three or four countries in Africa, but then comparing notes with others, what really makes Christianity difficult is that the only... The only picture of Christianity that some people have is the prosperity gospel theology. That's all they even know. I mean, they don't even know there's anything different. I'll never forget the first time I went to Kenya, and I was asked to do pastor training with the Maasai. The Maasai? These are the ones you've probably seen. They wear the red sort of toga or skirts. They carry spears, and, and still it's a mark of manhood. You have to kill a lion without a gun, with your spear, and all of this. And I'm in the bush, you know, teaching these guys. And I'm, I was asked to teach hermeneutics and homiletics. How do we go to a passage, understand it, and present it? So I'm teaching it. And I've got two translators because they don't speak the same language. And I just remember thinking by the end of this, this was a disaster. This didn't accomplish anything, which I don't think was true. But I'll never forget, we opened it up at the end to a question time. And this guy this one Maasai warrior raises his hand and he asks a question. The guy translates it for me. And the question was, what do you think of Benny Hinn? And I thought, how do you, living in a dung hut, I mean, literally, that's what he lives in. How do you, living in a dung hut, know about Benny Hinn? That's about the only preacher he knew of. So it makes it really tough because 
the, the, the word of faith movement, prosperity gospel has just swept Africa. It really has swept it. So everything you do by way of teaching the word is, I remember I was there just in April and I was speaking on, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, second Corinthians eight, that though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Had no idea I was stepping into a big mess because they say, that's the verse they all use to say, Jesus wants you to be rich. Now think about it. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. It's like you've totally turned that verse on its head. It's talking about being rich spiritually, but that's the grid through which they see everything. And that's so discouraging. But again, we're only you know, impacting whatever little venue God gives us. But it is encouraging to see these men say, wow, we're seeing what Scripture says and what a, what a release. So, Brian, we only have a few minutes, and I'm just going to exercise here uh, um, the last question. I'm going I'm to get to ask it. It's difficult to be an NBC student. We're busy. You know, there are a lot of requirements in ministry and being involved in churches and dorm life and, and student service jobs and all of that. Could you give our students just maybe a little advice on how to keep the Lord in front of them and I know that sounds strange, but even with homework yeah. and, and reading it, but to, how can they keep God and keep the gospel in Christ and the purpose of being here before them as they continue moving through now kind of almost the second half of the semester? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a great, you, great question. If you wouldn't would, close us in prayer then. Yeah, and I wrestle with this as a Bible college student, seminary student. Anyone who's gone through that understands that question. You guys all get it. And my challenge to you would be this is to force yourself, make yourself, view your studies as devotional and not merely academic. Don't, don't, do not lapse into this. Well, in fact, I'll tell you, and I'm not saying everybody should do this, and maybe you shouldn't do this, but i tell you what I did in Bible college and the reason why I did it. I determined I was not going to have devotions outside of my class assignments. In other words, I never, don't stone me for this, I never had devotions all my years in Bible college. And my reason was this. What am I doing when I'm reading Romans? Am I saying that's not devotional? In other words, I, I am, for me, I would have been creating an arbitrary divide in my mind that reading the book of Romans, because I, I have to do it for assignment, is not devotional, doesn't feed my soul. But if I have devotions and I read the book of Hebrews, that feeds my soul. Well, what about when you have the book of Hebrews for a class? Is that not going to feed your soul? It's like, I just thought, this dichotomy is not healthy for me. So, again, I'm not recommending it for you necessarily. I'm just saying for me, I would not let myself put that wall of divide up to say, this is classwork, and I just got to do this, and this is devotions to feed my soul. So when I had New Testament survey, and I was reading through the New Testament, gang, I felt I had died and gone to heaven. I thought, I get to read the entire New Testament and I get credit for it, you know? And I get to memorize Bible verses and get credit for it. And so I just determined I was going to always approach my studies as, sure, it's intellectual. I want to understand. There's, there's an there's a intellectual aspect. I want to know what, and I've got to memorize things for a test. But it never became, coming back to sort of Esther's question, an either-or for me. Either this is devotional or this is academic. Never. And 
that has actually served me well now that I eventually went into the pastorate because I can honestly say, and I don't say this in any way in bragging, but I can honestly say I have never in 35 years opened my Bible on Monday morning to try to get a sermon. I never say, i got to get up a sermon for Sunday. Every time I open my Bible, it's, what does this passage say? What is this saying to my heart? And out of that comes the sermon. Because I, I, I don't want to divide that up and say, well, I'm studying for my sermon, and now I need to go have my devotions. Well, what are you going to say, what is that going to make your sermon be? Pretty non-devotional. You're not going to have any heart in it, any application, if you're viewing it just as sermon prep. So, uh, again, that doesn't have to be the way you do it, uh, however you do it. But, um, but it's just like, I just look at it this way. Gang, you have a great privilege. You have professors telling you you have to read the Bible. And listen, years ago, Tom Landry, who used to coach the Dallas Cowboys, was asked, what is the definition of a good coach? I'll never forget. He said this, a good coach is someone who makes you do what you don't want to do so you can become what you want to become. That's what you're in right now, gang. You're, in a sense, being made to do what you don't want to do. Not that you don't want to do it, but nobody likes to do homework, right? I mean, but you're being made to do what you don't want to do so you can become what you want to become. Hopefully a better Christian. And for some of you, maybe a missionary, pastor, what I don't know. But, but you've got good coaches around you. Your teachers are good coaches. They're making you do what you don't want to do. I've got to read this book. Listen, I, I stayed in school. I started my seminary work in January of 84, and I graduated in July of 96. You didn't mishear me. I crammed my seminary degree into 12 and a half years. <laughs> and the reason why I did that is because I wanted, in addition to pastoring and preaching and teaching, I wanted to be forced to do things I should have done anyway but would have never done. I read some great books because I had to read them for a class that I should have read anyway, and I'll tell you honestly, I would have never taken the time to read them. Because you know what? I'm as lazy as anyone else. I'm as undisciplined as anyone else. But if I have to do this, and I, some of the best books that have impacted my life, I had to read for a class, and I should have read anyway. So that's, that's where you're at. You're in a position where you're being made to read books and memorize scripture and take tests, and it's the best thing in the world for you. And view it as not just, I'm doing this as an assignment. This is feeding my soul. This is enriching my life. This is building my character. Get that mindset as you're going through school so that you don't almost like some Christians have the tendency to divide life into sec, sec, secular and sacred. Well, in the same way, Bible college students tend to divide it into homework and devotional work or something like that. So view this as a privilege to get to do what you're getting to do, and it will serve you well. All right, let's pray, and we'll let you go. Father, thank you for these students. I just am just so thrilled to just look out here and see them. And I know they're at different stages. Some are freshmen. Some will be graduating at the end of this academic year and everywhere in between. And, and what a privilege it is. I know those of us who have the privilege of speaking into their lives, whether it's in chapel, classes, or whatever, uh, conversations, discipleship relationships. And I do pray, Lord, that you would protect them from just lapsing into a, a sort of a drudgery in their Bible college days, like, oh, I have to do this paper, I have to read this book, I have to memorize these verses, but rather to, to see it as what a privilege that, that someone is sort of holding my feet to the fire to have me do what I ought to do anyway, 
but maybe wouldn't do if it weren't for the fact that I, I have to do it. And, and I pray that they would have that, that mindset so that uh, they could be equipped during their time here at NBC. They could be enriched. Uh, they could be challenged. They could be stretched and, and just uh, really uh, come out, whether they're here for one year, five years, or what, degree or whatever, but uh, that their experience here at NBC would be really life-changing for them. And I, I don't mean the word lightly, truly life-changing for them for the rest of their lives. I pray that for each and every one of these students and ask it in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.